Welcome to Art from the Outside, a podcast for anyone who wants an outside-in look at the art world. I'm Amitha Raman. And I'm Will Pally. And each episode, we're talking to the people who inspire us to help unravel the arts. Hey, Amitha. How's it going? It's going well. It's nice to see you, Will. How are you? It's nice to see you too. I am enjoying a beautiful morning in my kitchen. So it's my turn to ask, what's on your radar right now? Well, I just returned from Miami. It was my first art fair in quite a long while since I was on a self-imposed lockdown before my wedding reception. (laughs) And while I'm sad that we missed each other down there, it was so nice to just be able to reconnect with so many amazing artists and collectors I admire. So I'm definitely still on a high now that I'm back in New York. That sounds magical. The sunshine, the people, always amazing. And actually on the subject of amazing artists, like you mentioned, I'm super jazzed for today's episode because we get to speak with an amazing creator and thinker. And today's guest actually just received a knighthood from the Queen or maybe the king, I'm not sure. So I think it's going to be a really exciting conversation. This episode, we are honored to be joined by the incredible Turner Prize-nominated artist and filmmaker, Isaac Julian. Born in 1960 in London, Isaac is one of the leading artists working in film and video today. His 1989 film, Looking for Langston, garnered a cult following with his poetic exploration of Langston Hughes and the Harlem Renaissance. Over the past several decades, he has made work using multi-screen installations to express fractured narratives exploring memory and desire. Earlier this year, he was commissioned by the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia to create a work to celebrate the museum's centennial. Titled, Once Again, Statues Never Die, The immersive five-screen installation explored the relationship between the museum's founder, Dr. Albert C. Burns, and the famed philosopher and cultural critic, Alan Locke. In especially exciting news, next year, Isaac will be the subject of a solo exhibition at London's Tate Britain. Opening in April, it will present a survey of his work from the last 40 years. Isaac was also appointed a Commander of the Order of the British Empire in 2017, and was knighted by the Queen earlier this year for services to diversity and inclusion in the art. Isaac, we are so thrilled to be chatting with you today. Welcome. Thank you so much. That's a lovely introduction, and it's wonderful to be able to be here and to have a conversation. We are thrilled, both Amitha and I, as we were preparing for this conversation, we, we were very excited inspired, intimidated, insert all of the the uh, <laughs> adjectives, but most importantly, honored and, and just really excited. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you so much. But it's very nice to be here with you after such a kind of, with your endeavors <laughs> of trying to you know, pin me down. I'm so that I'm, I'm always, you know, I have to be in several places at once. And um, my partner always talks about the fact that, you know, there needs to be three of you, actually, you know, simultaneously <laughs> acting in various locations. And I think sometimes some people believe there might be. So, yeah, but 
But it's great to be able to sit down here and have a conversation with you now. Thank you for making the time. So first, we like to start with a bit of the personal with all of our guests. So can you share with us a bit about your background and if you can recall any specific cultural experiences or artworks that really inspired you to pursue the arts? Sure. I mean, I was born in East London and I grew up there and spent a lot of time there in my sort of early years. East London, when I grew up in the sort of 70s, when, you know, I sort of becoming a teenager, was in a way, retrospectively, quite an exciting time because, of course, 1976, 77 is when punk rock kicks off and there's this mm. explosion in youth culture. But I think also there's another cultural explosion that's taking place and that's really in the beginnings of what I call the kind of soul revolution in music that was taking place in London and in other parts of England. And, of course, I made a film about it. It's called Young Cerebrals, Mm -hmm. which I made in 1991, which looks at the Queen's Silver Jubilee in 1977 and follows two protagonists, Kaz and Chris. And you could say there's a kind of mild autobiographical reference in the work to myself, although I was not like Kaz, nor was I like Chris. I didn't, you know, have a pirate (laughs) radio station. I didn't sort of, um, sort of do all the things that they did. But, you know, I did go to soul clubs. And I would say that going to soul clubs at that time, which was sort of, in a way, incredibly cosmopolitan, was where I got a lot of inspiration. And in the background of that, of course, were all of the codes around sort of, you know, singers like Mark Bolan and David Bowie. I guess one would call it gender fluidity now, but there's a lot (laughs) of that was happening in pop music. And England was producing quite a lot of dynamic sort of stars at that particular moment as well. And in a way, it was like an introduction to making art, really. And this was all in your teens, Isaac. This was all in my teens. Before you even went to art Mm -hmm. school, you were surrounded by performance artists, musicians, photographers. That's incredible. Yes, Ian Jury lived opposite in my street as well. So I recognised him, yeah. Or maybe he didn't live there, maybe he was visiting, you know, but... It just felt like there was sort of, you know, a group of people. And I was just aware of things generally. There was a sort of cultural left. And I was sort of involved in sort of some groups, sort of youth groups, which were involved in some of those organisations. I mean, as a bored teenager, in a way, basically. (laughs) So, and as an alienated teenager as well. So... But at the same time, there was a sort of connection to clubs and going out, and all of this created a kind of milieu, which, you know, produced a whole aspect. And I think quite early on, I realised that I wanted to be involved in the arts in some capacity. Wow. Yeah. I imagine you being such a cool teenager, like at 16, 17, hanging out with these artists and being inspired to pursue film and art school. Yeah, because in a way I'd been introduced to people involved in a collective called the Newsreel Film Collective, and they made a film called True Romance, 
you might unfortunately be able to find it on the internet somewhere. <laughs> um, someone saw it in my studio recently and said, oh, I saw you in True Romance. And I was sort of, in a way, exposed to the rudimentaries of film production and understood there were collectives and workshops from quite an early age. So by the time I was 20, I had applied to St. Martin's School of Art. I got into St. Martin's School of Art. I'm making it all sound easy, but it wasn't so easy. You know, <laughs> I had yeah. to, you know, I left after I did my A-levels and decided just to go to clubs for a whole year. <laughs> wow. And then after that, I thought, well, and then I saw Andy Warhol and Bianca Jagger in this one club Ooh, I used to wow. go to an embassy. And I just felt like, well, you know, they have like quite an interesting life and I'm not going to have an interesting life if I don't go to study uh, and study like art um, to find out more about it. I love how you described it in another interview where you, I think you said something like film found me. And in a way it's like when you've mastered all these other art forms, film is the medium where you bring them all together. And it's sort of like showcasing your abilities in all of the other forms. It's true in the sense that sort of I did sort of, I was really interested in dance when I was younger. I was in a group, group called London Youth Dance Theatre. And uh, you know, I was quite interested in performance, but I have to say my early works, I mean, they were sort of super eight films, which were, you know, badly filmed, badly edited, I think. And <laughs> in a way I came, I started film in this very strange department, which was a sort of experimental fine art film department. And the teachers who taught me were structuralist filmmakers. And so that's a whole unlearning of film as narrative film yes. and a deconstruction of the form. And of course, in my year, we all contested those sorts of things. We were very rebellious, yeah. We graduated 19, 1984, that George Orwellian year. And yeah. we had our own kind of revolution, I think, that was taking place, at least culturally. Well, it's interesting, Isaac, that so many people graduate and upon graduation their work how should I say has a long way to go whereas you came graduated and you you made Who Killed Colin Roach your film in 1983 and even today it's it's an incredible film an incredible work of art and I believe you've restored it recently as well so it's it's quite something that you know from the get-go your passion and talent for film was sort of evident it just you got it from the get-go oh you know it's, it's very interesting you know that you say that because of course we have an installation in our studio of Hooker Colin Roach which we I can't show you but of course maybe we could have music in the background of that film track but I would say that it's a work which really haunts me to this very day mm. And it was also a work which, in a way, created an interest in the Sankofa Film Video Collective, which mm. I formed with several other younger filmmakers of colour who were graduating their various art schools at the time. And we got our first commission from Channel 4 Television to support our film workshop. 
film video workshop. And also, in a way, it also earned me a place at the National Film School. And but I only attended it for a week because <laughs> I didn't like where it was situated in Beaconsfield or too many sort of posh people in horses. And I just felt like, you know, they said to me, I made a film after Hookie Colin wrote called Territories. And they said, like, oh, well, we're going to teach you how to make proper films. And I thought to myself, hmm, I don't really want to make proper films in that sort of conventional way. So I was already questioning that sort of idea of what, you know, conventional film would be. But then, you know, I did make an, an attempt to make a more conventional film like Young to Rebels after I made Looking for Langston. And I remember being at a meeting in 10 Down Street, a rather strange meeting, a film tank meeting that Margaret Thatcher was conducting. And after the meeting, I remember borrowing a pen and... I said, has anybody got a pen? And Margaret Thatcher turned around and said to me, oh, I have one. Oh, my God. You know? yeah. And I said, like, I got it from her and was I writing would, I... down my information. <laughs> but you uh-huh. hold it kind of tentatively for you as a, uh, someone raised in leftist tradition to be there taking <laughs> the pen <laughs> from Margaret Thatcher. That must have been a, a wild experience. Very, very cool and fascinating. Well, I, I write about I write about it in a book called Die of a Young Sir Rebel, you know. And I'm not so complimentary about <laughs> my visit to Ted Downing Street at that time. But I remember sort of, I have the habit of a bit of a collectomania around pens. If somebody gives me pen, I just naturally keep the pen. Mm. And when everybody is looking for pens in the studio, everybody comes to my desk because that's where all the pens are assembled <laughs> ordinarily. And so, and this happened on this occasion. So Margaret Fletcher asked, he said, I would like to have my pen back, you know. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been why you had Margaret Thatcher's, like, Mont Blanc pen or something. (laughs) Something's about his yeah. So, yeah, so all pens are naturally mine. So, yeah. Isaac, you mentioned sifting through your archive earlier, and I know that research and the archive play a huge role in your approach to art making. For those listeners who are not art world insiders, can you explain the concept of the archive and how you leverage archival images in your practice? Well, really, I mean, I think the archive is really just, you know, we all have archives. And in a way, I guess our iPhone, when we have all our photographs, are the kind of new archives which we all keep and we all have in the cloud somewhere. But I think I was really interested in archives initially because I was interested in trying to retrace what I saw as invisible histories. So I've always been someone who's interested in collecting. And so, for example, around the time of... Um, the riots on making Hooker Colin Roach. I collected lots of newspaper articles and reports, and I still have them all in my studio archive. And so, in a way, I think the history is merely a curiosity, or the archive is merely about having a curiosity about the past. And in a way, my curiosity around the past is really about finding out about what I see as hidden histories which I kind of feel that 
there's always an alternative story or another narrative that we have to somehow try to kind of dig up to bring it to the surface to see how it will reverberate if we're able to come closer to it to tell us something about the times we live in today. So, But of course, the obsession of that all comes from you know, my own background, my parents coming from St. Lucia, the Caribbean, you know, they were kind of quite secretive about their histories and what they got up to. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I think that something that really struck me in researching your practice is just the amount of research that goes into your projects. For example, working on small boats, the research process took three or four years and you conducted primary interviews with subjects and just the great lengths that you go to to make sure that certain historical aspects are depicted accurately. For example, the actor who plays Frederick Douglass in Lessons of the Hour getting elocution lessons or calligraphy lessons. I mean, I think that that's something that's so special and really blew me away that viewers who just witness your films may not know all of the you know painstaking work that you do to research and get everything so accurate. Yeah, I like the idea of sort of getting the research accurate and to sort of basically, you know, for example, if, you know, the Ray Fair on the Frederick Douglass character, who played the Frederick Douglass character in Lessons of the Hour, wanted to make sure that he was speaking in a way how maybe Frederick Douglass might have spoken in the 19th century. And because of Ray Farron's background, in terms of being a Royal Shakespearean actor. Mm-hmm. He wanted that to be absolutely accurate. And he really worked on that for over a month or so with a voice coach. And so I think there's a way in which, and then also it's connected to the costume, costumery and the work. It's, you know, through working with Annie and Derek, production design and costume design, and all of those things are like a kind of visual archive that you want it to be very specific. The locations that we chose, all of those things are kind of a part of making the work authentic to a certain extent. That's actually a great segue to another question that we have around your work, uh, which is often described as lush, highly stylized and visually stunning. Yet, I know that you put a huge amount of planning into the sonic experience as well, sometimes even developing a soundtrack uh, for a film before you ever start shooting, which is maybe surprising to people. Can you elaborate on your approach and how, in your words, the soundtrack becomes a barometer or way of constructing images? Sure. I mean, the best example for that is really looking for Langston, because, for example, the soundtrack for looking for Langston existed at least a year to 18 months before we shot the film. Wow. You know, I met sort of musicians like Blackberry, the late Blackberry, um, who was um, a singer, a poet, a musician, songwriter at a conference in 1986 in Los Angeles where he sung a song called Beautiful Black Men. And that song ended up being in a film, but I knew that. I'd probably have to get him to re-record it. So in Sankofa, when we were in pre-production, we invited him to London and he then 
made a song for the film called Blues for Langston. And that soundtrack existed about a year and a half before the film was shot and informed the structuring of the film and the script of the film. And similarly, I was interested in a kind of historiography of black queer music. And I was able to find out about queer blues songs. Mm, And, you know, basically I found this information out through, you know, reading journals and sort of generally just being very curious about African-American cultures. I'm trying to think of another project where that's taken place. I think in 10,000 Waves, we were also working for a number of years on sort of collaborations with musicians such as Jia Wabo and the Chinese Dub Orchestra, listening Mm. to his music and to his tracks and then thinking about how to construct scenes in that film to his tracks and then inviting him to actually make a track for the actual film. So in a way, the sonic aspect can be very instructional for how you're making a work and can pave the way to how you might edit the work and how you might think about it scripting. And that allows for certain meditation and gives you an advantage when Mm. you're sort of, you know, in a way, constructing the piece. Well, it's interesting that you speak about sound being a way to guide your vision, your artistic vision, but you've also used sound in your installations to actually guide the viewer in the way that the sound is arranged or dubbed or calibrated, which I think is really interesting to think about as well. Yes, because in a way, I think one of the things which has been very exciting and unique about making works in a museum and gallery context is that then you can arrange in a way how the spectator might be able to become a mobile spectator. And so I think this really came out in a work like, for example, in 10,000 Waves, Mm -hmm. where we were deliberately sort of editing screens, going on and off and situating them in the nine screen work, um, because it's a nine screen work. You know, of course, I started making multiple screen works, which are three screen works, four screen works. And then we were experimenting with this idea of sort of how the spectator could be able to become more mobile in their viewing the work and to choreograph the spectator, so to speak, in the space, in the gallery space. And so these experiments, I guess, with sound for me was in a way, creating a kind of meta-cinema, making the gallery installation more sculptural and mm. allowing the sort of sort of spectator, I think, to understand and begin to have this other relationship to how they might view a film or film installation work. And I think they got it. I think sort of like, you know, Statues Never Die, which is a five-screen work, I could see when it was installed in the Barnes Museum that and the curators could see this as well. You know, in fact, the curators at one point sort of resituated all the chairs. And I went, what are they doing? You know, <laughs> <laughs> can you put those chairs back to where they're meant to be? <laughs> and of course, you know, I was kind of and were wrong. They right? 
they were right. Yeah, they were <laughs> right. You know, so afterwards I put, you know, I said, no, put them back to where you suggested. Because what had happened is that they, the spectators came in and if we put them too far, then they hesitated. But once we put the seats and arranged them within the different locations in the space, which in the middle of the space, in a way they got it that they could look and view from mm. different perspectives. And mm. I mm. think they got it, they developed an enjoyment. They understood that you could take pleasure in the looking at it from these different positions. Mm. You know? And so it's really interesting. When was it that you first started working with with multiple screens? Was it at the the Pompidou? Because one of the things that is so remarkable and that people often comment on is how immersive and how striking it is that you use multiple screens, ranging from as many as 10 screens, three screens, five screens. When was it that you started to expand from one screen to multiple screens? Well, you know, it's a really interesting question because I realized that when I was sort of going through the kind of Tate show for works, I looked at an early work which one of the creators wanted to show. It's called This Is Not An AIDS Advertisement. And I thought to mm. myself, oh, my God, why did I want to show that work for, you know? <laughs> it's kind of, God, it's almost embarrassing, you know? I mean, it's not really actually embarrassing. It's really a work that I made in 1987, which was a response to the AIDS crisis. And mm. I thought there was a very oppressive sort of advertising campaign um, which was really a kind of sex equals death, you know, for gay sort of communities. And it was a terrifying campaign, in fact, you know. But I think, you know, I wanted to offer different kinds of images that we could identify with. So in a way, I created this sort of art, quite arty work, video artwork, but what, one of the things I realised that in the second part of the work, or in the first part of the work, it is a single screen work, but it, it kind of at times goes into four screens, you know. So, mm. Interesting. so I realised that sort of, you know, if you look at that work, in a way, it's a kind of beginning of thinking about multiple screens, mm. which of course you did in video art. It's interesting, Isaac, because I, I want to talk about the thematics of your work, for me particularly as a, a queer person, queerness um, and, and blackness. But I also wanted to ask about, you know, to sort of double down on this idea of screens. One of the things you mentioned, um, which I thought was really cool, is that 10,000 Waves is a, what, nine, nine channel, nine screen installation. But then you also have a one screen version of it. It has a slightly different title, and you're explaining that you want your work to be able to be seen by multiple communities. So 10,000 Waves can be shown in a community center or, or venues where they don't have the ability to um, install multiple screens. And I thought that was really cool that your, mm -hmm. your work kind of flexes in that way. Yeah, because in a way, I think there's a possibility in, you know, making a single screen version of the work so in the case of 10,000 Waves I made a single screen version which is called Better Life and that premiered at the Venice Film Festival in 2010 and we were able to invite Maggie Chong and able to have this screening but I have to confess that I did delight 
when people came up to me and they said like, oh, well, you know, it's your film. Like, how much is your film? And I said, oh, it's not for sale, you know. It's not, <laughs> it's not you know, they said, you know, it's kind That's of amazing. It's a film, which is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an addition work. So, <laughs> wow. So that was quite, I got a kick out of that. I guess it's a sort of, you know. Forget about um, you, Miramax, 20th Century Fox. <laughs> like, you think you're so important. So that's, that's hilarious. I mean, it's a kind of, it is a bit of revenge in terms of a Miramax story, 1991 being <laughs> at Cannes and sort of um, Young was won the Cement de la Critique Prize, Critics Week's Prize, and then Harvey Weinstein being on a boat and like, you know, Miramax had a party and Harvey coming up being saying like, well, I guess I'm going to have to buy your movie now. You won a prize, no. you know. Wow. And, Mm. And thinking like, oh my god, you know, he's so horrid, you know, and yeah. So I do have a slight bet noir relationship to film culture. I have to confess, in that sense. But I mean, I say that it's very ironic because I was made an academy member this year, and I have a work showing at the moment in the Academy Museum. Of course, they're two different things, the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures and being an Academy member. But, you know, at the same time, I think, well, I think that film's more, in, film's becoming more interesting, or at least there's a younger generation of filmmakers like Barry Jenkins and the kind of group of people around him, I think, who, you know, really doing quite interesting things. And that's quite refreshing, I think. Mm. I want to say, I mean, I'm like, there's, it sounds like there's so much for Art Kiki about... Yeah, I know. I was the... like, my ears were perking up. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, I want to, I'm like, oh, okay, I know what we're going to ask about for Art Kiki. But I was just going to ask, I mean, as you were speaking about the multi-channel works, and I was thinking, oh, you know, now it's not easy, but it certainly was a lot harder to do that kind of editing in the past before digital technologies and to synchronize them. And then it made me think about how now for the past few years, people have been making films with their smartphones, with their iPhones. Now people are, you know, thinking about virtual reality and, and all of those things. And is that even a question that's, or a topic that's interesting to you? Or are you kind of like, no, that's a, that's a red herring. That's distracting. Well, no, interestingly enough, I mean, I think one of the reasons why I started the lab in Santa Cruz with my partner, Mark Nash. And forgive me, for, for listeners who aren't familiar, can you explain what the lab is in Santa Cruz? Yeah, I mean, basically, I was approached by Santa Cruz University to teach in the art school or in the arts sort of department. And I have a whole history of Santa Cruz because in the mid-90s, I was invited to teach in history of consciousness there. So when I was asked to, you know, teach there in 2017, I thought, why not? You know, especially because of Brexit. I just thought I want to yeah. escape Brexit, not always be on the blighty island and to <laughs> basically have another sort of space for exploration. But also I was very interested in the kind of virtual reality sort of developments that were kind of growing. And I felt that in 
on the West Coast, you had a number of different interests, especially around the collection of moving image works like the Kramlik collection, Pamela mm. Kramlik. You had also amazing collection, apparently. Yeah, that was an amazing collection. And, you know, you had other people who were kind of interested in the kind of moving image. And I think that's still the case. You know, if I kind of, on the West Coast, you have the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, you have the Lucas kind of museum that's going to be opening. You have the Kramlex, you have a number of collectors. And then also you have, of course, Silicon Valley and the whole aspect of virtual reality, which is actually also taught in terms of gaming in um, Santa Cruz, and it's quite popular. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So, but then I have to confess that <laughs> when it comes to gaming, <laughs> and I have to put those glasses on, those things, <laughs> I think, like, oh, my God, I feel trapped. You know, I can never... You know, they're I've awful. never really got into it. I feel they're, they're very claustrophobic to me. And so for Dan, it's a bit of a no-no. But I do remember going to the film festival in Switzerland and seeing a number of works, which were virtual reality works, and everybody sitting down, and you put them on and you watch them. And some of them were really interesting, but I feel like I haven't really been able to really kind of grasped it as a sort of experience and a, a sort of aesthetic, or maybe I'm not completely impressed. It is very interesting to think about the way that you really do push the boundaries, the technological boundaries of your medium. I mean, I think I saw another interview that you, we were speaking about 10,000 waves and how the resolution was something like 30 something thousand K versus most Hollywood films, which are two or sometimes 4K. And the fact that you had to actually invent your own surround system to be able to deliver the sonic experience that you wanted to. I think that that's, again, something that's really fascinating and something that people may feel when they experience the film, but they don't know all of the, the details behind everything that had to happen to make that come to life. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a whole area of sort of, you know, the sound and the sonic components are really, really important. And I think that's where I know that in my some, some of my discussions that I've had with my colleagues on virtual reality, where there's been, you know, there still needs to be some flow. But, you know, 2020 happened, you know, and the lockdown, pandemic and everything, and it kind of, in a way stagnated a lot of the conversations mm. and things which I really wanted to develop, you know. So I'm hoping that that might sort of develop now or in 2022. But, you know, it's rather belated, I have to confess. I was going to ask, Isaac, not all artists, especially artists as accomplished and successful as you are, choose to teach. And so I was going to ask, why is it that you choose to teach? What is it? What do you like about it? Well, I think the thing is, I mean, at this particular moment in time, it is a bit demanding to teach, only because, you know, one has to be in three places at once. But I think it, it's interesting to... I think the experience of different locations and spaces, so it is interesting to you know, teach an American context and a German context and teach in a West Coast context. Mm. So in a way, it's more to do with the kind of area of research that it allows you to do and explore. 
you know. So I think that's sort of one reason why it's interesting. It must be really rewarding to be on the other side as a teacher. I mean, thinking back to your art school days when you weren't really taught about movements like the Harlem Renaissance or Black modernism or figures like Langston Hughes. So now to be empowered to kind of drive the syllabus and be able to focus students' attention on the things that you learn, which were really self-directed. Yeah, because they could become part of the curriculum in a way that, you know, perhaps students could take those things for granted. And in a way, I think that's really important. And I think in a way, there's still that sort of question of like how we can make these questions become like part of, you know, what someone would be familiarized with. Well, Isaac, it's interesting you mentioned this for your students and we'd spoken about it earlier that one of the things that I think is I'm really excited to ask you about is these thematics of queerness and blackness in your work that your 1989 film Looking for Langston was for me as someone who's not nearly as knowledgeable as you are but I see it as quite um, radical in portraying not only queerness but black queerness and I was just wondering where do those themes sit in your work? And I guess a part of me was was curious, how do you think the conversation around those themes has changed? Because in some regards, looking for Langston feels just as radical now, almost 35 years later, as it did then. And so I don't know what that means, but for me, it was just really important. I just well, in some ways, there's part of me that thinks to myself where well, it shouldn't be, in a way, and I think it's a reflection of the fact that, in a way, there hasn't been enough works that are p- being produced mm. to a certain extent. So I think that's a big question, actually, and I think, of course, the younger generation will answer that. But I think in my generation and the generations in between, it feels like there's some unfinished business. But certainly mm. when I was making the work, I mean, that work stems from the sort of energy of the kind of artists and poets that I met during that particular period. And in a way, I think in terms of the kind of possibilities when we're working in the Sankovan from Video Collective in the sort of mid-80s, we were able to work in an artisanal manner, which allowed us to be able to develop a different approach to how you might make works. And I think, in a way, I'm still trying to work a bit in that model. You know, mm. so my studio is a way of trying to work in that model. But I think we need to create the conditions for that to develop, you know, more widely. Unlike some mediums where artists can, you know, like a painter can work in the studio on a painting solo, you know, filmmaking is unique in that it requires many collaborators. And I found it very interesting that you have several long-term collaborators, both in front of the camera and behind the camera. For example, the same cinematographer that you've been working with ever since looking for Langston or your editor, Adam Finch. Similarly, I know you you like to use the same actors across multiple projects. Can you tell us about why 
you choose to work with the same people and I guess like how that impacts the end result? Well, you know, at the moment we're sort of working on a catalogue for Tate and basically what we've done with the curators, Isabella Maidment and the editor, is to have a catalogue which is a little bit different from my other catalogues. I guess we made an analysis of the various catalogues and how can we make the catalogue which would be a little bit different from the other catalogues. And so the new catalogue for Tate is a series of conversations between myself and my different collaborators. So there's a conversation between mm. Adam Finch and Mark Nash, my partner. So in the Tate catalogue, we have Adam Finch and Mark Nash. We have Nina Carlgren, that's also in the catalogue, talking about working you know, on my early works, like Looking for Langston, right through to the letters of the hour. I mean, Nina Corrigan had retired, and I said to her, no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> I need you. You have that effect so on people. Kind of like... <laughs> I, was, I was reading about how you also coaxed Maggie Chung out of um, retirement to work on 10,000 Waves. So. Wow. I did, yeah. There's an amazing, it sounds like, Isaac Julian mm-hmm. family almost, that there's this community of people and collaborators who you work with and these incredibly mm-hmm. strong bonds and relationships that you forge, you know, that working with one editor and then you get introduced to another and you're all sort of supporting each other. And maybe that's me overreading it, but that's how <laughs> I'm yeah. choosing to. And incredible talents from around the world. I mean, people, you know, that audiences are familiar with in a commercial context, like James Franco or Tilda Swinton or Maggie Chung, like we just talked about. I think it's very interesting as a viewer to be able to see them in a completely different art world context. And I'm sure probably very challenging and rewarding for them as a talent that is collaborating with you. Well, Isaac, on the subject of fantastic things and amazing things. One of our favorite things in every conversation is art kiki. So our first question is, I'm assuming you do, but do you know what a kiki is? Well, when you mentioned it, I was wondering, what's Max talking about? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so I'm... I'm, It's a young generational thing, you know, kiki. I'm surprised, <laughs> maybe a little bit disappointed that you don't know what a kiki is, but maybe it's like... Oh, uh, well, don't be, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just showing my age. <laughs> Hardly. We don't know anything, but a kiki is what well, we use it as our sort of... How would you describe it, Amitha? Our time for a, a light-hearted, a, a kind of a gossip. A kiki is a gossip. Yeah. I yeah. see. Time to spill the tea. (laughs) (laughs) Now I know. I think one of the things that we were so fascinated by, Isaac, is, and I think you alluded to it earlier, is there are things that we all love about the commercial film world and things that we love a little bit less. And, you know, you mentioned sort of spending time in LA and that moment at Cannes or Venice when the the big producers were were looking to sort of purchase your film and i was just curious like how do you characterize that relationship what is it that you love about the commercial film world and what are the things where you're like actually um i'll leave those in la like those are the things that i'm a little bit happier to be in santa cruz for or in london or or wherever i think to be honest that i kind of don't mind having the critical distance for the commercial film world and I think that's really why I'm involved in the art world. Yeah. And 
you know, there are people that I know that work in the film industry, but I see myself as someone who was interested, perhaps, initially, but in a way got slightly turned off and decided that I didn't want to be someone that would always be banging at the door, you know? Mm. I just felt like that's not interesting Mm -hmm. to me, you know? So it's not interesting Mm -hmm. enough, like, to bang on a door. So I think one... You know, you create your own thing, really. Mm. So, but, you know, I think there is something that's also kind of tantalising, you know, budgets, you know. (laughs) For example. (laughs) Can we have um, Isaac Julian, but on a Marvel budget, (laughs) you know, give you the the, the budget of the Mm. Avengers or something? That would be, wow. Well, it is interesting that you say that you do play between the two worlds and you don't see them as either or. But when people go to a museum or gallery context, you said something like they're looking to be surprised. And I think that as someone like yourself, who's really driven by the motivation to innovate and to continually push the boundaries, it makes sense that you kind of live more in the art world because you are able to constantly surprise viewers in a way that maybe the traditional commercial world doesn't prioritize as much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just as simple as that, really, isn't it? But I think also, <laughs> also there is sometimes, and I think that's why I always make single screen works, because I think, you know, for example, Lessons to Alex is a single screen work. Of course, you know, 10,000 Waves does all my works are also single screen works as well. So, and that just, you know, enables a certain fluidity, really, you know. Mm. So, and so that's maybe harking a little bit back to uh, sort of maybe having your cake and eat it. (laughs) (laughs) The one thing I will say is that I'm really grumpy with Hollywood because I have been looking for years to try and get access to Looking for Langston and it is not on any of the streaming platforms I will say the good news is that Franz Fanon, Black Skin, White Mask, uh, it was on Criterion channel for a little bit, and now you can stream it. But Looking for Langston is a tricky work to, I candidly haven't been able to see the entire film because it's, I haven't been able to find it on any um, online services. Well, you will soon because we are going to, it will be on Criterion. (gasps) Oh, wow. You heard it here first on Art from the Outside. (laughs) You yes. have, you've heard it on your first, yeah. I'm working with Marcus Few on it, <laughs> Strad releasing, and Criterion. We're also going to have Youngster Rebels <gasps> on it as well. Cool. So there's a whole thing we're trying to, you know, in a way, package. Yeah, so... Can we put it in our calendars? Like, is there a, is there a, a tie, at, you know, is, it a, is this a 2022 d- development? It will be happening. It'll be happening. Yeah, (gasps) should happen within the year. I hope. Yeah, very, very cool. Just to conclude, we always like to end on a forward-looking question. So, Isaac, what are you looking forward to in the next six months? Well, I'm sort of looking forward to being in Santa Cruz. I'm sort of also looking forward to sort of being able to. I have some inclinations around doing some things in a different manner, you know, so 
Interesting. I can't really reveal how to, what those are, but sort of, you know, I'm sort of looking, I'm excited about that. But I mean, we're living in a time of anxiety, you know, and I think we're living in a time where there's, you know, a lot of, in a way, precarious aspects, you know, which are sort of hovering around everyone, you know, so in a way we can't really take things for granted. So in a way, I don't think I can be totally kind of utopian mm. about the idea of what is the wish I may want to do because you may not get them. That being said, many people do wish for a solo presentation at Tate Britain. And <laughs> that is, I'm not letting, we are not letting you get away with a non, a, a dystopian note. For art nerds like us, a retrospective or, or I don't know, mid-career survey, exhibition, um, whatever you want to call it, at Tate Britain is pretty major. So to go from the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia to the Tate Britain, Maybe I can steal your thunder and say, even if you're not looking forward to that, we are definitely looking forward to that in <laughs> April. <laughs> no, I mean, like, obviously it is exciting and I think it's interesting to sort of try to, you know, work on an sh- exhibition, which is a survey show, and to kind of think about its nuances, you know, and it makes one reflective. Mm on your practice. So, but maybe I've been around the block enough times that I realise, you know, the star comes and it goes, (laughs) you know, the kind of like, (laughs) (laughs) so I'm not, it's not that I'm not, not, I'm nonchalant about it, but I just want to be sort of pragmatic as well. Yeah. So. Well, that's a very wise and thoughtful note. And a wonderful place to end. It's been very nice, you know, having our conversations. Thank you so much for your your thoughtful questions. It's been really nice to do this. And thank you very much. Thank you. We feel this is a huge honor and a privilege to talk to you. And as you know, we've been pursuing you as a, <laughs> as a guest for almost two years now. So thrilled to have had this conversation with you. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Art from the Outside. As a friendly reminder, please subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Art from the Outside Podcast. Our sound engineering is by Hanger Studios. Photography by Enrique Vega. And original music by Lola's Ghost. Stay well, be safe, and hope you'll join us for the next episode.